Kala for Lava and welcome to the Global Bus Figure Success Podcast. I'm Andrew Fa'avali, your host. Every week I'll be chatting with successful Pacific people from across the globe, unpacking their stories and more importantly, picking out insights, lessons and golden nuggets you can use to live your best life too. Noa ia, noa ia e Māori. I hope that's right, but it's supposed to be hello and rotuman. Uh, welcome back to the Global Bus Fika Success Podcast. I hope everyone's doing well. It's been an awesome week this week, but it's also been tragic in that there have been schoolboy tragedies. Um, just two days ago in Melbourne, a 16-year-old boy, Solomone, had his life taken at the hands of other Pacific youth. And I'm not sure if there's a more tragic event than our youth taking the lives of their own. Our parents and our grandparents fought tooth and nail and left the comforts of their homes so that we could thrive and have a better life here in these new lands. And it's so sad, therefore, to hear of tragedies like these where we're not making the most of those opportunities. So in saying that, we pray God's comfort and covering over all families involved and all people involved who are remaining, um, especially the parents of the young boy whose life has been taken uh, in other news, it's been an exciting week. Um, in New Zealand, we had our very first Pacific-made, Pacific-hosted and Pacific-focused sports show debuting on Sky Sport New Zealand, and that was produced and made by Carverball Media, so it's really great that we got that show. It was featuring pioneers of Pacific rugby and some Pacific opera talent in the shades at the end there. So shout out to the team, Johnny Tapu Damon, Salisa, Oscar Kitely, Kevin Sanyul, Ashley Stanley and the crew for making it happen. A Pacific sports show on prime time. Who would have thought? Um, but also about damn time. Really looking forward to America and Australia following suit. It's our turn to barge our way in. But back to podcasting things. How cool was Joey Q Kanga last week from the Island Block radio show based in Hollywood? A Chamorro brother representing Guam on the biggest stage, along with Joey Sav from Samoa, Coach Viliami from Tonga, and other big hitters from media over in the States. Thanks, Q, for your time. Uh, appreciate it, and catch up next time I'm in Hollywood. Hollywood Bakery. Anyway, this week we've got our first guest from the island of Rotuma. Yes, Rotuma, that Fijian dependency just north of Fiji, which has a population of around 1,600 people, and with many more living on mainland Fijian islands. So our guest this week is Lisa Tai, and Lisa holds a Bachelor of Commerce and Economics and is an Associate Director of Deloitte. So Deloitte is one of the world's big four accounting firms. Her specialty area is forensic finance crime, and it sounds like some CSI mixed in with some boys in the hood, added to some wolf on Wall Street kind of thing. And, and to be honest, that's kind of the image I got when she started talking about her job. It was a mix-up and a mash-up of all those things. And it's quite an apt image, actually, because this chat bounces around to really disconnected topics, but in a really connected way. It's, it's really cool. It's awesome. I had heaps of fun talking to Lisa. So uh, here it is. Thanks so much, Lisa, for jumping on. And welcome. How are you going? I'm good. I'm, I just said I'm good, but I lied because we were just talking about how tired we are. <laughs> but no, I'm good. Yeah, it's it's been a long week, so it's great to be talking to you on a Friday afternoon. What a nice way to end the week. So thank you for having me. Cool. Thanks, man. I just wanted to know, can you just explain a little bit about, because let's just frame the conversation with where you're at right now. So can you tell us about Deloitte and also about Associate Director? 
Yeah, so Deloitte is one of the big, I guess most people would know Deloitte is a big, one of the big four accounting firms. And I think um, there's, a, there's a big misconception that we're a team full of accountants, but we're not. We have lots of different service signs who do things like audit and tax and private here, but we also have other service signs like consulting and cyber and risk advisory. So I sit in the forensic team, which is under risk advisory. And essentially, uh, my job, I, the way I described it is, if you think of fraud investigations, and I've been doing this, I think I'm in my 14th year now. Wow. So we're the ones that get the call when the company down the road might think, hey, Bob's been stealing some money from me. Can you come in and help me and see what's happened and how much did he steal and who did he work with and how do you do it and can we get the money back? So I've been doing fraud investigations for probably about 10 years now and then did analytics, so data analytics for a little bit. So using technology to find find the fraud or find anomalies or other inappropriate behaviour. And then over the last couple of years, I've moved more into the advisory space. So because we know fraud happens and we know why it happens and I guess the lack of controls and processes that allow it to happen, we're in a pretty good space to stop it from happening or to advise clients around, you know, how do you protect yourself from things like fraud and corruption and other things that people shouldn't be doing. So, yeah, I've, I love it. I've been doing it for 14 years, been in the same team. And I think while Deloitte and Big Four can feel like a really big space, yeah. um, the team that I'm in is relatively small in comparison to the, some of the others. So, awesome culture, awesome team, great work. And over the last 12 months, we've established the Pacifica Services Group here at Deloitte New Zealand, which has been incredible. It's definitely been a career highlight for me. Um, and so we've now just gone through our brand and identity that, that we want to launch. And um, I'm very proud to say we're going with the Rituma name. So our new name is called Paspeo, um, which is Rituma for Breaking Through Waves. So it's, I guess, two hats. So 50% doing forensic and the risk advisory associate director space. And then the other 50% is um, trying to get this Well, we are we are doing the Pacifica Services Group, which has been awesome. It's been really fulfilling. Awesome, and congratulations for that. You know, it's so good to have Pacific recognition inside uh, one of the big four, especially in New Zealand, where we make up a massive part of the population. Um, well, not massive, but a significant part of the population. But what does an associate director do? What's what's up with that title and that position? Good question. Still still trying to figure it out. Sounds so, pretty important. That's I, I mean, you know, I guess, for, you know, companies like this do have different levels um, and, you know, we sort of start with grads and you go right up to partner level here. And so I guess associate director be considered as part of the management group or leadership of our team, which is really cool. Um, so I guess in an associate director role, you're doing some of the work, so doing some of the delivery directly with clients, but you're also managing projects and then also managing the team or helping to manage the team, which is the part that I really like. And then in an associate director role, you're also looking after some of the business development type activities too. So I guess moving away from the doing part, which I still really like and still coming to grips with not being able to do all the time and more, of, I guess, you know, someone might consider to be more of a management type role. Man, it sounds really important and influential. And there's no wonder that you're tired at the end of the week because it sounds like you do five people's jobs in one. In oh, one no, we have, we have uh, Andrew, we, yeah, I, we have a really cool team, right? Like, um, you know, we've got some really smart people, especially the grads and the analysts and the young people that we have. You know, I keep saying, I was saying to someone earlier, I'm so glad that I'm in this position now because I would never have made it in. <laughs> 
if I was competing with some of the grads and the young people that would get coming through now, they are, yeah, they are off the chart. So it's pretty exciting to be in a space like this. And I think it's one of the benefits that come from working in a big firm. You're just exposed to so many smart people that are passionate about their work and want to succeed and want to do well. So I guess to be surrounded by that five days a week is pretty, you know, it rubs off and it's pretty incredible, really. Oh, what? I'm jealous. Uh, I work by myself. Or by <laughs> I guess we get sick of each other. She definitely gets sick of me, but... Man, I feel like I want to be in, a, in your team. So Yeah, well, sorry, yeah, and yes, that, that, there was a thing with COVID and lockdown. You know, we're yeah. so used to seeing people all the time. And then for a few weeks, you know, we had to get used to, oh, hold on, it's just me. I can, you know, I have Zoom and stuff, which is great. But you know, I know I was definitely missing the human interaction part of the job. So Zoom is great, but nothing can replace being in person with people. So, yeah, I love, yeah, I love being back in the office with my team. Yeah, how, port- how important it is, eh? Because I've read somewhere that they say in Western cultures, knowledge is power, and in Pacific cultures, uh, relationship is power. So I just want to talk to the part of your role that speaks to managing a team, because, you know, I think we live in this collective kind of environment as Pacific people, and we're usually pretty good at relationships. But what are you trying to drive home in terms of managing or leading a successful team? There are lots of different parts to my role, but the part that I've really I really like is the people part and I guess helping young people achieve, you know, I guess just reach for their potential or to seek out their potential. So for me, it's really funny because someone asked me to describe what kind of leader I'd like to be. Yeah. And, you know, I've always thought that I want to be someone that was seen as authentic, empathetic and I guess supportive and just genuine. Like I've you know, that's that's but that's taken some time to get there, you know. And I think um, when I reflect back on the early days, I definitely wasn't there. And I don't know if it's having children and just you get a bit you know, wiser as you get older. But being able to, I guess, show the young people that a good leader comes in different forms mm. and attributes like being vulnerable and open and not casual is probably not the word, but just being your, you know, I know it's very token, but being your authentic self at work isn't a bad thing and that's they can be qualities of a really good leader here so yeah I guess you know still it's still work in progress you know there's still aspects of managing people that I would like to improve but yeah it's I love I love working with a team I'm definitely a team person rather than someone that prefers to work on their own yeah cool thanks for that really great insights can we just I guess jump back now that we've, we know where you're at at the moment, but can we jump back to where you were born? I understand you were born in Fiji. And can you also tell us about Rotuma? Just previously I had uh, Joey Kanga from Guam, and so I really like that these oh, wow. are they're not small nations, but uh, for us, especially in New Zealand and Australia, they're not as prominent or the lesser known for some reason. I guess it's just because of population. So yep. it's good in, in a platform like this to even just give some background and some information about those islands we might not hear about as much. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I was born in Suva, Fiji. Um, My mum is full Rotuman and my dad is half Fijian, half Chinese. My my grandfather, my my dad's side is from mainland China. Uh, So, yeah, it's a bit of a fruit salad mix. But in terms of Rotuma, so Rotuma, in terms of size, currently has, I think, less than 2,000 people on the island. So, (laughs) It's tiny and it's, I think, just 
I think it's 400 k's north of Fiji. So if you looked at it on the map, it is literally, if you even saw it on a map, is a dot in the middle of the ocean. So um, Rotuma is under the Fijian government, but I guess in terms of culture and traditions, it would probably be more aligned with Polynesia and Samoan culture. So, so yeah, I mean, it's... I, and I'm talking about Rotuma. I actually, I have to admit, I'll tell you a secret, I haven't actually been to Rotuma yet, <laughs> which is on my wish list. Well, and the reason, but the reason I haven't been to Rotuma is up until now, you had to um, get there by boat. Okay. So you'd have to fly from New Zealand to Fiji and then it'd be a two or three day boat ride what? to get to Rotuma. And we're not talking, you know, nice uh, cruise ship <laughs> sleeping on the deck <laughs> so, so you know I think I've been in New Zealand far too long because I don't think I would have survived <laughs> going on the boat ride um, so now we have now I have flights you can get there by plane from Suva but there my mum is from the village of Itamata in Rotuma uh, my mum moved from Rotuma when she was just after high school and that's what a lot of people would do so they move from Rotuma to Fiji for jobs there is one road that goes around Rotuma. There are no hotels, no motels, resorts. There are dairies, shops. That's pretty much it. So it's it's awesome. Like it's back to basics. Mm. But from the photos that I see and speaking to my family, it's paradise, right? So I'd love to be able to get there. And so in terms of um, movement, my mum moved from Rotuma. I still have family in Rotuma, which is awesome. So it'd be great to be able to get there. And then, um, yeah, then parents lived in Fiji, met in Fiji, got married in Fiji, had three children and then we moved to New Zealand in 1987 on the day of the first lotto draw in New Zealand. <laughs> so my dad reminds me all the time and we still buy tickets and I'm still yet to win. <laughs> one day, one day. One day. So 87, I'm not sure if this is an appropriate question, but was that because of the coup? Yeah. And then my dad got, so was, was it just before, I'm going to get my dates wrong. I think it was just after the coup. I think I was four at the time um, when we moved. So don't have a lot of memory. And actually for preparation for this interview, I texted my sister and I was like, oh, you were a bit older than me when you came. And my brother was a little bit older. So we moved here when my brother was, I think, a teenager. And so I was actually just messaging, asking him what, how he found, you know, the move from Fiji. We're all about extended family. You know, most of our extended family still is and lives to such a foreign place like New Zealand at the time. So Did he come back to you? What did he say? <laughs> My sister reminded me, so I'll share the story with you because she was messaging me earlier. Yeah. So we moved to New Zealand. My dad was a mechanic and my mum worked in retail back in Fiji. And so so three children and we moved here when I was four. My dad, there was a lovely man that came to Fiji and sponsored my dad oh. to come to work in New Zealand as a mechanic. Came to New Zealand we were supposed to move to Rotorua. My dad got a job in Auckland. And then we had nowhere to stay. Like we had nowhere to live. Couldn't find anything. And so my dad's boss said, well, you can come and stay with me. And he had this, like, I don't remember it now. We would still drive past. He had a mansion. It was like a mansion in Kumu on this, like, lifestyle block. And we are like, oh. And then, according to my sister, my mum was worried that we would break something in the house, so we would wreck the house. And so she said, no, no, we can't stay in your mansion. And so they gave us a caravan. <laughs> so, so we lived in a caravan, so five of us on the back of their property in Kumu for a few months. Um, and then we moved, yeah, lived there. West, so that's West Auckland, and I've lived in West Auckland ever since. So, yeah, after that, we actually moved 
Then my dad was working at a garage and we lived in the flat above for a few more years, still in in Henderson. And then because we're a new family and we really missed home, I think my parents did as much as they could to connect us or find other Fijian families here in New Zealand or other Rotomans. And so our surname was Lee. And then we found another Fijian family and their surname was Lee too. (laughs) And they live in Brisbane now. But but then my parents decided that we needed to stay together and help each other out. So they bought a block of land in, sorry, when I say block of land, a section in West Harbour. And we lived side by side and they built houses that were identical <laughs> and we lived there for, you know, I think over a decade side by side. So, you know, I have very fond memories, of, you know, at that point living in West Harbour, living next door to our, you know, our new yeah, other Lee family. So it was like the two Lees. One lived at 3A and one lived at 3B. <laughs> so, You're confusing the postman. <laughs> taking over. So yeah, when I came over, my, you know, my mum was a stay-at-home mum. When I went to high primary school, um, my mum then went and worked at Caxton, the Caxton factory on Swanson Road in Henderson, which was later Carter Holt Harvey, and then worked there for, I think, 30, 20, 20 years, over 20 years, making and packing disposable nappies. And then my dad, yeah, was a mechanic until he, oh, he's actually still going, but he retired from being a mechanic a couple of years ago. And then, wow. yeah. So yeah, Love and I was I was so glad I messaged my sister and I was like, really? I was like, why did we live in a caravan? She's like, because we had nowhere to live. And I think, you know, when we came over, I was four. So I guess, you know, there are there are many things that just passed over. But I guess it's interesting because I think about it now. Whenever I'm asked, you run out, you know, where do you come from? And I never say New Zealand, I say Fiji. My mm. automatic answer is Fiji. And I've asked, I'm asked, what are you? I say we're two men Fijian. So and my children now, they say well. It's a bit of a hot topic in my house, but my children say that they're Fiji and Rotuman. They forget that they have Samoan too. Oh, really? <laughs> so, yeah. so you're dominating the space. Yeah, so I think if I just keep talking about it enough, they'll they'll say that they're Fiji and Rotuman too. So what was that man? Was he a Bailangi dude or was he a Fijian yeah. dude? The, really? No. Why did he do this? I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I to this day I have no idea. And my my family was so grateful to him that over the years, you know, we've kept in touch with this man and his wife, lovely couple, lovely family in Rotorua, you know, would go down to visit them. And, you know, for a long time, I think my dad did consider them as almost like they're his adopted mm. auntie and uncle that lived in, you know, New Zealand. So without them, we're, yeah, I'm not quite sure what would have happened. So, you know, I think it's the grace and kindness of people like that, that things like this can happen, which is it's pretty cool, right? Yeah, we need those stories, eh? especially right now where there's division. Well, there's a lot of division around race and ethnicity and it's to show that, you know, there are people who are breaching those boundaries and showing love to others that are outside their own circles. I just want to just have a look at, you know, when you said your mum and that they didn't want to stay in the mansion because they were scared they might break something. Do you reckon you would have felt that way too? Is that just a natural kind of thing that we no, feel? I'm pretty sure I was like, oh, why are we, not, why are we staying in the caravan? <laughs> Well, when it's staying in the mansion, I'm pretty sure all of us would have like, Mum, like, why did you say that? But I remember, you know, I was young at the time, but I have fond memories of that family. Uh, they were a Croatian family, so our caravan was next to a hall that they had for their Croatian celebrations, and Patonk, they played Patonk next door. And the lady, she was so kind to us. She was so generous. I remember she had a red convertible and she would take me out to like buy ice blocks and stuff. And it was awesome. Like, you know, while we were this immigrant family that had come from Fiji that they really didn't know that well, but 
yeah, I guess, you know, kindness and things like that go a long, long way. So yeah. it's awesome. Yeah, very grateful. I, lo- I love that story, eh? That this dude came and sponsored you guys and you could have ended up in Rotorua, but you're there in West Auckland and West Auckland has been a big part of your life. So w- which school did you go through? Yeah, so I went to West Harbour Primary and then I went to St. Dominic's College, which is a Catholic girls' school out west. My sister, my brother, yeah, my family's strong Catholic. So my sister went to St. Dominic's College as well. My brother went to Liston across the road to Liston College. So I had a good time at school. Like I I reflect back on my time at school and I enjoyed it. I made really good friends and I still keep in contact now. And I think because St. Dominic's is a smallish school in comparison to some of the other Auckland ones yeah. you know that sort of environment works for me I think that's you know translates to being at Deloitte in a small team as well like I, I, I really do prefer the small team environment so yeah St Dominic's College. How do you reckon you negotiated your identity through college because you're a mix-up of a few Rotuma, Fiji, Chinese how did you handle that identity story throughout your teen years? I think growing up in West Auckland West Auckland's a pretty diverse place mm. and St. Dominic's College is a diverse school. So there were lots of other Islanders, Maori, Asian, European, like it was a really mixed, diverse school. And, you know, if I'm being honest, I probably just didn't even realise, well, I guess just race wasn't really a thing for me until I hit uni <laughs> because, you know, I don't, and I just, maybe that was just, you know, I was being naive at the time, but you know, our family was a big part of the Fijian community, still, still is really close with our Fijian community. And then I went to school and I saw other people that looked like me and everyone seemed to get along. You know, all the groups were very mixed. And then it wasn't until I got to uni and I was in my first year doing economics. And again, it was really diverse. It was AUT. So I got a scholarship and while I was in school to do, to study at AUT, which I'm really grateful for. And then I got to year one at AUT and still it was quite diverse. So yeah. I was like, oh, it's, you know, still didn't really think anything. And then it wasn't until I got my second and third year, I was like, oh, where did everybody else go? Oh, did they start dropping off? <laughs> and it, I'm pretty sure that was probably like the first time that I was like, became really aware oh. of the lack of representation. And even church, like our churches in West Auckland and Ranui. Our church is diverse. We've got Maori Pacific, European, a big European congregation. So it just never seemed to be effective for me because I lived in a diverse area and always had done. (laughs) Did you always want to be an accountant or did you want to get into something else? And who were your role models growing up? If I'm being completely honest, at school, like I was a good student at school. I think I was the, the senior scholar for religious education at school. And I was pretty good at economics and accounting. I did it well. And then uni came round and it's like, oh, what are you going to do? Like, just hadn't really thought that far ahead. And my sister and my brother had studied accounting. I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll just do something (laughs) that they've done and something that I'm good at. And sort of, you know, I really enjoyed my economics degree and did international business as well. And I really enjoyed it. But then I got to the end of the year and I was like, oh, what am I going to do with the economics degree? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, there wasn't really a clear pathway for me. I'd been working part-time since I was 16 or since it was legal to do so. So, you know, I, I wanted to find a job and I wanted to find a full-time job quickly. And so I was really lucky to essentially be applying for any roles. And 
I was really lucky to get a role in the recovery team or insolvency team for a small firm called McCallum Peterson. So McCallum Peterson had two sides to the team. So they had insolvency, which essentially I was doing liquidations and receiverships. And then the other half was forensics. And I think that's six months into it. I was like, this is hard. I couldn't, the fact that you're essentially winding down companies and having to, you know, interview directors who have put their heart and soul into a business and it's failed and then to be a part of the end of it, I, you know, I really, really struggled with it. And so I remember six months and I spoke to one of the, the bosses at the time. I said, oh, I can't do this. I'm going to quit. I need to find something else. And had found a job doing economics. And then just before I was about to leave, and they came and asked me, they said, well, why don't you give it forensics a go? You know, why don't you just try it? See if you like it. We're happy to have you. If you don't like it, we'll help you find something else. Cool. You know, that was 14 years ago. So at that time, I had no idea what forensics was. Yeah. But my first job was, well, my first investigation, one of them was doing the Wayne Patterson uh, benefit fraud, which I can talk about because it's in, it's in the papers or was in the papers. And this was a guy that had created 130 false identities oh, to nice. claim superannuation payments from the ministry. And it was to the tune, I think, of about $3.5 million, which at that time was like, you know, it was big money. It was like the biggest benefit fraud at the time. And I remember the, like, the excitement of that, like, you know, just trying to follow the money and figure out where it was going to be next and, you know, what had happened. You know, I've been hooked ever since, really. And I kept saying to people that I think I deep down I really wanted to be a police officer, but I was never tall, fit, or fast enough. So, <laughs> so this, is, this is a really good uh, fit for me. <laughs> wow, man. So what did that guy spend his money on? Oh, well, this is the crazy thing. He was really smart and he was a good investor. So what he had done was he had actually invested his money in Apple shares, oh, Apple shares and gold and gold bars. And this was like 14 years ago, right? So Apple shares, the value went up, the gold bars, he hid it in his, I think the bathroom ceiling and in the garden and just cash. And so... When the police went round, and I remember seeing it in the newspaper, you had photos of these gold bars that he'd hidden and all these Apple shares that had gone up in value. So, And then later found out that he'd done the same in other countries as well. So, wow. you know, he's one of these people that I think was, you know, super smart, but perhaps just got a kick out of doing the wrong thing. Yeah, true. <laughs> you just think if he'd applied himself doing something else, you know, it could have been a different story. So you interviewed um, directors in the liquidation phase. Any tips or insights around things that commonly came up for them that led their, led to the demise of their companies? Oh, I think at the time, and I think this is still true now with the small, uh, some of the smaller businesses that we see. And I think, you know, I think of people that I know, and I think a lot of the ones that we came across or I came across at that time, you had people that were really good at a, a certain trade. Yeah, or, yeah. you know, they were good builders or they were good chefs. And because they were so good at it and were keen to do a business, probably, I suspect, maybe didn't recognize the transition from being good at it and then developing a business around it. And so, you know, I just remember coming across at that time, you know, lots of construction companies which had tradies who were awesome at what they did, but perhaps, you know, didn't have the support or, you know, didn't have access to the right expertise and resources to help them build the business around it. So, and and at the time, you know, we were doing a lot of the IRD or the tax department liquidations and, 
So things like tax, right? Like, you know, when you don't pay your tax, <laughs> so, you know. But, you know, if you're thinking about it, you're a small business owner, you've got lots of bills, including suppliers and staff. If you have to make a call on who you're going to pay that month, it's probably going to be the people that you're interacting with, that you do business with, and then things like tax were getting missed for the ones that we came across. So I think that was probably the most common one that we came across. And it was a shame, right? Because people obviously had a lot of experience and skill in what they what they were trained to do, but just lacked the, the resource, really, and the support to take it further. So put your tax aside. <laughs> Texas, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> PSA on the tax department. <laughs> Uh, yeah, because it's um, you know, one of the motivations for me to um, start this podcast that was, I think there's a lot of Pacific people who have got heaps of talent and heaps of experience and heaps of IP, and I think that it's a, a little bit of a tragedy that they don't take it to market. But you know, the transition of be, being a technician or an expert in like a technical field is really different to jump out and then create a business around it, like you say. What are some just the, the basic elements that people who are in that kind of transition period thinking about utilizing their skills and their IP and experiences, what do you think are some of the key factors for them to consider before or during that transition into their own business? Yeah, so we're doing some work now with the Pacific Business Trust, which is an organisation in New Zealand, essentially in their role is to help and support Pacific businesses in New Zealand. And you know, I think it's so much support and resource for small businesses, but we need to do a better job at educating people around what is available to help them make the transition. I think, you know, I think I imagine it can be really easy to, when you have an idea or a skill and you want to go to the next level, to almost operate in a bit of a silo, right? You just keep going, keep doing day-to-day things, but perhaps if you don't have people to bounce your ideas around or to almost sound check what you're thinking, mm it can be really easy to almost keep going, have tunnel vision and running your own business. It's hard, you know, it's a hard job. And I think people perhaps underestimate the time and the effort and the stress that goes involved, you know, is involved in running a small business. And so I definitely think there's so much opportunity to go to that next level, but it's not a decision that should perhaps be taken lightly. And I think places like the Pacific Business Trust that offer free advisory and business support to Pacific business owners. I mean, it's what an awesome resource for people mm. to have and things like your strategy or helping you with your accounts and your taxes or giving you some advice around procurement and tendering. I think if we can connect the dots a little bit in terms of where the need is and, and the services that are available for people, I think that would go a long way to at least at least hopefully having a better outcome with more successful businesses in New Zealand. Yeah, but even outside of New Zealand, like here in Australia, mm. I've started a couple of businesses here. My perspective is that the government wants small and medium enterprises to win. Because, you know, you're going to employ people and you're going to stimulate the economy and stuff like that. So whether it's Pacific Tailored, which we're really envious of because New Zealand has a lot of that stuff, but it doesn't really matter whether it's Pacific Tailored or not. you still got a lot of support and resources, whichever Mm. country you're in, that you need to tap into. But I I just like the insights there because, um, you know, I think a lot of people are kind of thinking about whether they're going to jump in and and I think they need to be measured in that. And I think what you said is, you know, don't underestimate the time and the energy and the resources you need is is great advice. Um, Because I think what we can see, like when we see another business doing well, yeah. You only see the shiny parts, right? And you only see the positive ones, you know, you see the people with new cars, you know, like yeah. I guess you only only see the positive from an external perspective. And 
you know, you don't know all the, the peddling and the hard work and the long hours and the long nights that go in behind it. And so I think not to put people off doing it, because I think it's a great opportunity and great way to get our people ahead. I think it's just making, I guess, informed decisions around what you're going to do and, you know, having a good view on timing and what are you actually selling? You know, I think it's, yeah, I think it just make, making sure that we're thinking it through, yeah, not being drawn into the, the glitz and the glamour of owning your own business. The Instagram of business. <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> but you're right. Personally, I've helped a, f- a few people come through and, and think about their business idea. And when you're a technician, you kind of know what value you can provide. But sometimes the marketing and the communication part is off because it's not what the market needs mm-hmm. to hear at that moment. It's not what you believe they need. It's what they believe they need. And that simple concept is really yep. difficult for technicians and for people who have expertise they find it hard to jump into the shoes of the market and then speak to them with the right marketing material and stuff like that. It's oh, that's awesome yeah. inside it. So I know what I'm good at and I know what I want to sell. You should just buy it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't you buy it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's awesome insight that you're right. It's uh, I know what I want to do. Yeah. But yeah, and perhaps not realizing what people are prepared to pay for. And, yeah. you know, my, my brother, so my, my, my older brother, John, he, him and his wife, they've, I think it's been, must be 10 years now they've been developing and setting up and running daycare or early child care centers in Northland um for yeah for about a decade now and, and they've done a few and their latest one is awesome it's called minifies um in Mangafai oh, cool. but but yeah you know, I guess when you and I only see snippets of it it's it's hard work like it's hard work running your own business it's hard work when you have staff it's hard work keep, you know keeping things going so I you know I take my hat off to anybody that runs their own business because I you know I'm very aware that it's it's not all shiny all the time yeah no actually my brother runs a few in South Auckland I think he's got four oh. or five across East and South Auckland and man you know I see him you know, he's he's got the flexibility and stuff, but I think one of the hardest things for him is managing staff in each mm-hmm. centre and making sure, you know, how Deloitte's got, you know, directors, associate directors, and you've got levels and layers that have been kind of formed and formulated over years of experience. Mm-hmm. That's really tough as well, especially when you scale really quickly. And the skills shortage too, right? Like especially in yeah. early childcare centres because of the rules around having qualified staff and the ratios, there's a shortage. So you've got to do that, that to deal with as well, right? So yeah, lots of people seem to be in early childcare centres. Yeah, no, <laughs> we might be in the wrong business. Yeah, too. It's an essential service. So, <laughs> so now you're in finance crime, man. That sounds like uh, such a foreign concept to I reckon many of us finance crime. What is that? Yeah, so here in, in New Zealand, we'd call, so I'm in the forensic team and, and there are a couple of different bits, but I'd be in the financial crime team and it sounds very CSI and parts of it definitely it are. Like it. <laughs> it sounds very CSI, but essentially, I guess it's just trying to either stop people from doing the wrong thing or catch it from when it does happen. And and so f- for the early parts of my career, when I was doing fraud investigations, another big part of my work was doing what we call probity reviews. Okay. So let's say government department funds non-profit, you know, X amount of dollars to deliver a service. And so we were doing lots of reviews to make sure that the money was being spent on what it should be, essentially. And during that time, we did a truckload of fraud investigations in that space. And now these are, these are my personal views, by the way, yeah, <laughs> and 
there were a few times where I'd be having to interview, you know, people that you could see that deep down they were just they were good at their job they were they were delivering good service to the community but perhaps got caught up doing the wrong thing for whatever you know there were so there are so many different motivations for why people do things they perhaps shouldn't things from you know we see lots of I guess stories where addiction, whether it be gambling or alcohol or drugs, was the motivation. We saw definitely lots where it was greed, and then we saw you know a large chunk where it's you know it's financial pressure, whether it's home life or bills to pay. And you'd be surprised at the different types of people that I would come you know we come across when we're interviewing for um, a fraud investigation or a financial crime case. It's it's all walks of life. There are definitely, we say there are two profiles. So we normally come, there's normally the dominant executive type, normally male, yeah. normally middle-aged. Um, and there's certain personality that comes with that. And then the second profile is female, um, sort of middle management office staff. But the motivations are completely different. You know, people that have been in their job, for a really long time, have become really good at their role. People trust them. People go to them for advice. They never take any holidays. They never take any leave. They're always working hard. You know, and perhaps they were overlooked for a promotion or they had some other pressures happening behind. Yeah, it's been really interesting. And I'm sad to say that probably over my 14 careers, the majority of the ones that I've done have probably been female. (laughs) Female. So, and we can't judge what people do but yeah it's been really interesting I opened my eyes around just the different walks of life and and different motivations and reasons for why people do what they do but you know I get a lot of satisfaction out of my job I think a I enjoy finding finding out how it happened and why it happened and how did they do it like I guess that yet yeah, the how part That's um, interesting but also when, so, yeah, when someone has done something wrong you know being able to either work with their employer from an employment perspective or whether it might be referring the job to or the file to the police or the serious fraud office for further action. Yeah, it's yeah, I get a huge amount of satisfaction from the work that I do in the forensic um, financial crime space. So we can make assumptions around the motivations for the other profile, the middle-aged man, powerful kind of dude. We, what was your take on their motivations? I'm being very stereotypical, but... Most ones from the ones that I've done was greed. <laughs> was <Asshole>. greed. <laughs> yeah, flash house, flash car. Yeah. You, know, you know, this lifestyle was probably, and Maybe I'm completely generalizing, pressures. but if I had to profile. Sorry, maybe financial pressures from living that lifestyle and then maybe yeah. dip in something they can't make payments and that. And, then. and I'm telling you that once you start, it's very hard to stop. And most people don't stop until they're caught. And we call it a hockey stick. So when we're investigating a crime, so if you, sorry, I'm not doing a very good job, but you start down here and then, you know, when they start, they're in relatively low amounts. And it's usually, we say it's because they're testing it to see if they'll get caught. And if you, if it's a low amount, you could usually explain, oh, it's an error. I didn't mean to do it. I can pay it back. And then if the pattern between the first one and the second one is usually spread. They might wait a month to see if it's picked up during monthly processes. So it's, I guess, a bit spread out and flat, and the amounts are relatively consistent. But the longer it goes, and the longer people keep going without being detected, it just goes like 
this <laughs> in terms of the amount and amounts being taken and you know we put that down to people become confident mm. confident they haven't been caught so keep going and then people get greedy as well so it's yeah it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating so work, and just, yeah, and I, and I'm and you know I must say, certain in our work, like that's definitely the that's the exciting part, right? Like mm. that's the exciting part of the job. But because we know that, that puts us in a really good place to help organisations stop it from happening in the first place. So you how know do, what I mean? But you know, for me, um, just my assumption is that a lot of it is insecurity. A lot, a lot of it is stuff that's related to themselves, but usually outside of the role. For you as a risk analyst and a preventer of these things, how do you design for those insecurities that are really at the bottom of why they're doing this stuff? I think there are a couple of different buckets. There's controls and processes, right? There are just checks and balances that you should have in place to sure. stop this from happening. But I think the biggest control, the biggest thing any organisation can do, whether it's small, big, different industry, doesn't matter, it's culture. Yeah. organization culture yeah. if people are committed they're satisfied they're happy it's a pretty big jump to ripping off your employer or you're ripping off the organization so i guess from our experience a lot of the times when we're called in the organizational culture is poor you know people are unhappy in their roles there's a poor tone from the top in terms of what is acceptable or not the culture part i can't emphasize how important that is to get it right as a control, really, to stop people from doing things like this. So, Man, that's a knowledge bomb right there because I think, you know, that's kind of what I was getting at when I was asking the question, these, these insecurities and that are deep-seated. And really, in terms of organisational psychology, we think of our values and our values shaping our beliefs mm-hmm. and our beliefs up to our actions. And so the values of the organisation are critical in terms of the culture that they foster and the culture that they nurture. And I think it's the same in my work in community as well. You don't really want to rip off a community that you feel strongly attached Mm. to. So then how do we create a strong connection between an individual or a family and the community in which they live? And so it's cool to see how these themes are bringing across. I love how this conversation has gone from finance, really. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Down to to values. and, And values is the thing that is underneath the iceberg that really connects us, but the tips of the iceberg are very separate, right? Yeah. So how would you design organisational culture, or is that your responsibility, or is that something that you recommend to your clients? Yeah, we definitely have experts where organisational culture and transformation and things like that, you know, they're they're the experts, so I'm definitely not an expert in that area. But I think your comment around values I mean, and it's you know, it's one thing to have these things in documents. You know, yeah. this is the company mission. These are our values. We want you to do X, Y, and Z. Like that's the easy part. That, and I think people can get caught up in thinking, oh, but we have a code of conduct policy and we have our mission. Oh, we're like ticking all the boxes. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's no good if your people, especially your leaders, don't demonstrate that in like their day to day interactions with people. So. You know, I it's definitely not my field, but I just I guess where I've seen it work well is when leaders of the business exhibit what is written in their company policies and documents and they sort of play it out. So yeah, that's probably does that help, Andrew? Yeah, that helps massive. That's so cool. That's yeah, that's amazing. Growing up, were there any role models that you looked up to in particular? 
For me, would without a doubt be my family. So my mum and dad and my sister and my older sister, my older brother. So we're a few years apart. So my sister would be what, seven years older than me. And then my brother's 12 years older than me. So I've always, you know, I've always been the baby, but I've always had really good role models. And, you know, my, my brother and my sister have, you know, been really successful in their own right. My sister lives in France, has lived there for about 15 years as an accountant in France and has four, four, you know, four kids. And then my brother's doing really well as well. He has three children and lives up and up north. So, you know, for me, it's been my siblings and my parents, right? Like my parents are hard workers. So I didn't have to look far for good role models. And, you know, I had a great childhood and, you know, we, I'm very, I guess, proud of the relationship that I have with my family. And then my husband's probably going to listen to this. So, you know, I'm, I met my husband when I was really young. So I met my husband when I was 17. So we've been together for a while now. And I'm very grateful that I met my husband so early on. You know, I feel like it helped me stay out of trouble. It just you know, helped me stay the path. And what are we now? 18 years. I on the other side. Of, yeah, it's awesome. So I've had a, I've always had a close circle. So I probably haven't been someone that's had you know, lots and lots of friends, but I just, you know, I've really valued and, and tried to look after the relationships of those that I hold close, which is my family and my husband, my in-laws, and also, you know, a couple of friends that have from school and, and uni and, you know, friends that I've been friends with for over 10 years now. So for me, it's without a doubt my family and friends for, as role models. I was just thinking because, you know, in, in a massive organisation like Deloitte and you being a Pacific woman, what did that feel like? Did you feel like you were a minority in this big-ass machine or how did you feel as a Pacific woman in one of the big four? In big four, corporate, in these big consulting firms, we underrepresented, we are underrepresented as both Māori, you know, Māori and Pacifica people in places and spaces like this. So. And again, when I first started, I was just lucky. I was just so grateful that I had a job and, you know, in a cool place. So I was first at McCallum-Peterson and then we merged or were bought by Deloitte. And that's how I came over to Deloitte as an, oh. as an analyst or a junior. And then when we came over, so I came from this team of, you know, 20 people. And my bosses from that team are still my bosses now, all my mentors. So in terms of career role models, my partners from the McCallum-Peterson firm are definitely big career role models for me. So then we came over to Deloitte and then you're just thrown into this machine, right? Like it's a big environment. There are lots of people, lots of really smart, competitive personalities, which takes some getting used to. And yeah, when you look around, there aren't that many people that look like you. And for a long time, and to be honest, still now, have always struggled with imposter syndrome. Just always have, right? And I remember like in the early days, I would try everything I possibly could to almost like just fly below the radar because I didn't want someone to like come and tap me on the shoulder and be like, oh, excuse me, like who let you in? Like, <laughs> you know, and, and it's great to be um, an associate director and to be, you know, leading the Pacific Services Group now, but I still even now struggle with it, right? Like it's, I don't know what it is. It's hard to shrug off. And every now and then it will hit me. I'll be like, oh, man, what are you doing? You're still there. So it's been hard. And I and I recognize the challenge that that faces still now for a lot of our young people coming through. Still not a lot of people that look like us in any, you know, sorry, that's not just specific to Deloitte in any of the corporate spaces. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's hard. And, and for me, 
the key has been like trying to find my people, you know, like mm-hmm. trying to find your tribe. They might not be from the same background, but connecting and having a you know really good support group of friends in the places that you work, I think, is important. So, and having good managers and leaders, people that support you, is you know, is is really important too. So, yeah, definitely struggled with it, but now having been in this space for a while, you know, I take it as a really serious responsibility to show, um, I guess, young Pacific people that this is a role that they can be in too. So the part of my job that I really love now is connecting and helping our Pacific team, you know, which is made up of very talented young people, which is awesome. Do you think imposter syndrome is one of those things that you're never going to eradicate, but you're going to conquer by understanding it and then knowing how you're going to respond to it? Yeah, I don't, I, I, you know, 14 years, I'm still battling. <laughs> so, you know, when I talk to the grads, I'm like, I'd love to say that a couple of years time, this will go away. But I think you're right. Just recognizing it, recognizing that when you feel it and almost, you know, you have to check yourself and, and share it with other people and get other people to remind you about why you're here as well. Like I'm, a big believer and I probably overshare um but I, you know I'm really really open with sharing how I'm feeling with my team probably too much and to have them I guess almost be a sounding board for me and to reassure me that I'm doing the right thing and that I am in the right space and you know and I should be here is really important for me and you're yeah, having that information internally is good right but you know I for me personally I need other people to support me appreciate your honesty because I think a lot of people will take a lot out of that that getting the right support being able to verbalize the fact that you're going through imposter syndrome and and any other kind of thing that is a rattle in your ear that is mm-hmm. something that can hold us back from fulfilling our potential and this is a podcast around success and I think without doubt everyone who I've talked to has said you know even with Apollo when you were listening to Apollo he said he came off the line because he was scared he was actually scared mm-hmm. to get hit himself and that's why he went and hit um, hit others, <laughs> served it up first. But I really appreciate that. Um, and I and really just and sorry, sorry, Andrew. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say on that. I think the other time that it's really hit me is when I had my kids, and then being a full time working mum. I guess I've always had the imposter syndrome, and then always had it as being a Pacific person in you know a corporate space, and then then I had my kids, and I've got two kids now, so seven and three. And then it's like, oh, hold on, now I'm working full time and doing, and having mum guilt for you know my kids being at daycare and being looked after by other people. And then I just remember like when I first came back from maternity leave, I really struggled with it. It took me a really long time to be back to where I wanted to be work wise because I was like, oh, you know, I was working part time for a little bit. I was having to leave early to pick up my kids and then oh, everyone else is still working, but I have to go. And, you know, I remember another secret, I would like put my like jacket on my chair. <laughs> like, oh, so I still think I was here. But I had to like go and pick up my kids. <laughs> and so, and then I guess always feeling like you were never doing everything, anything a hundred percent. And I, you know, I, I talk about it now that being a working parent and sorry, this probably just doesn't apply to working parents, but for me, being a working mum, mm. you're like torn because you want to be doing both things, being a parent and an employee, 100% time-wise you can't. And so, you know, I've always, I guess, been struggling with how do you, I guess I've never, you know, felt like you're doing everything about half, you know, giving 50% to and not doing enough as a parent and then not doing enough as an employee. And how do you rationalise that in your brain that, 
that's an unrealistic expectation that you could do both 100%. And so, you know, when we talk about imposter syndrome, yeah, I've, uh, I found like it's hit me a couple of times. It's definitely recognising Pacific in a non-Pacific space and then um, then as a Pacific working mum too. So. Yeah, there's a few intersections. From West yeah. Auckland. <laughs> and no yeah. one else is from West Auckland. <laughs> No, I, I can hear that because I hear a lot of, I honestly hear it from my wife as well. Like, she feels like she's not progressing as much as she wanted in any realm. But then being, being a mum, we've got three kids and they're really young, six, five and two. You know, even for me, I'm thinking, man, am I working too much and not hanging out with them enough? And like, when is enough? And yeah, I guess we're always going to have those questions. But just sharing this out loud will help others who are going through it to know that there are others going through it. Yeah, and I think, you know, the important part for me is, and this is hard, right, it's easy to say, is trying not to compare yourself with other people and, other, you know, other people's journeys. And I think, you know, it's, especially when you come back to work part-time or you've been away for a little bit, it's like, oh, you know, you're trying to, always trying to keep up with everybody else just is never a good idea. And for me, I think over the last year or two, it's just been really clear about what I want to achieve here and what I want as a mum and then just making sure that you stay the lane with that rather than trying to get looking around and, and going, oh, you know, what about Bob and Mary? Like, so, yeah, which is, but I'm very conscious that it's easy for us to say, but, you know, difficult to do. <laughs> <laughs> work in progress it's definitely work in progress <laughs> uh, it's awesome I think you know I really appreciate these conversations because they're real and they're raw and they're honest and they're honest from a person who's sitting in a really influential position so um, it makes us you know all us lesser people it makes us feel really <laughs> really really um, comforted actually in, in the fact that other people are going through it just kind of to wind it down if you invited three people to dinner who, who like dead or alive who, who would they be? Um, my uncle began passed away, from, I think, over 10 years ago. My dad's youngest brother, and he was the best, and he passed away suddenly from a heart attack. And we were really close with him. So he would be definitely my number one. And my son is named after him. So, you know, to be able to introduce him to my kids and, you know, would just be awesome. So my uncle, my uncle began. And then secondly, I'm such an Obama fan. Like, I'm such an Obama fan, like, big time. And I'd like to have them both, but if I had to pick one, I'd go with Michelle. Yeah, <laughs> but definitely be Michelle Obama. And then, um, what do you like? And I'm thinking of, oh, I just think she's so inspirational. And she's, you know, when I, when you think about role models beyond your circle, I think she's just an awesome role model. You know, she's, she comes across as, you know, super authentic. Mary, but you know, good at what she does and smart and onto it and courageous. So I just think she's a great role model for young girls. And then, and this is beyond my family, so I'm thinking further being a Catholic, and I'm such a fan of the Pope at the moment. So I would have the Pope, Michelle, and my uncle. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you and then if I had a fourth one, can I invite Beyonce too? <laughs> No, you can't. She's gonna dance. <laughs> She's gonna dance with the Pope. <laughs> so it's a pretty eclectic dinner party. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what you're gonna eat. <laughs> my and my parents, if they listen to this, they would be really proud that I said the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> so we're still doing things for our parents. Oh, you're totally. It's all. It's all for our parents, right? Even <laughs> even when you become one. <laughs> 
Hey, just for people coming up, maybe even if we targeted at um, young Pacific women or young Pacific girls, what kind of advice would you give them if you had the chance to speak to them? What advice would you give them? If I phrase it in the, if I if I put in the context of working in a corporate space and working in a big four, a professional services firm like Deloitte or any of the others, I heard this bit of advice, from, so I can't remember who, but I think it's really good advice, is while you might be one in a really big company, you still need to treat it as if you have, you're have you running your own business. So you're one, but you, you need to think about your brand. You know, we're thinking about how you interact with other people, you know, thinking about delivering a good service, thinking about how you're going to sell yourself, how you're going to get on different projects. And so, you know, I think for this environment, I think that's great advice to, to consider is, yes, you're one of many, but in terms of progressing and doing well and enjoying your work here, thinking about yourself as your own little brand or business, I think is really good advice. And then I think for Pacifica girls wanting to enter into spaces that aren't traditionally for them, right? Like you don't see many examples. Somebody's got to do it. Like somebody's going to be the first. So we've got to start somewhere. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, I guess we just have to have the courage um, and the support from the people around us that we know that we can do it. And it's hard to be the first to do anything, but isn't it great to be the first as well? Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To set to set the scene for others to come through. And I think in moments of doubt, you just have to think that there's a bigger piece to this, right? Like it might be hard. You might be, you know, be really struggling with being the only one in some spaces. But if people can see you as an example of what is possible, then, you know, what an awesome role to be able to play, right? Like what a great opportunity to be a role model for somebody else. So when I see young people coming into corporate spaces, I'm like, far out, guys, it's hard. Somebody's got to do it, and you can do it too. So we just have to be bold, right? We just have to be bold, and and that's this. The other word that I keep hearing and here is we always use the word deliberate, awesome. being deliberate about what you do, and so not leaving things up to chance. And so, and I'm probably not a very good example to be honest when I look back at my career because I sort of just went with. I like my team, I like my work, I'll just keep going. So I'm probably not somebody that's a good example of being deliberate. But if you can think through what you want to do and take deliberate steps or actions to get there, no matter how long it might take, at least you know that you're on the right path. Mm. So, yeah, you know, when we do leadership training here and and things like that, that's always a key word here. It's being deliberate. I really appreciate it. I like that one and many because I think it really reflects specific people as well. We're individuals within the collective and we have to think about both. But I also like how you've brought it back to values of being courageous and bold. And, um, you know, I think I think you have been deliberate. I think you've been deliberate in the fact that you've wanted to enjoy your work and enjoy the people you work with and enjoy the people you work for. So for you, what's, what's, le- what's the next stages for Lisa? Uh, I'm Andrew. I'm so excited by our Pacifica group here. Like, I want to take this team as far as we can and to make as big of an impact for our community as possible. You know, I'm really excited by it and, you know, keen to see it grow and wherever that may take me or take the team. Great. You know, uh, the further we go, the better. But I, you know, the opportunity to, because I think for me, from a career perspective, I've always been pulled. Sorry, Andrew, I know you're trying to wind it up, but I'm still going. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, 
I think for me, like I've, the reason I, we went down this lane is because a year ago I said to our partners or our tower leaders, look, I'm going to go do something different. Had a good time, but I need to work with my community. I'm going to find another role that allows me to do that. And um, one of our partners here, his name's Jason, he said, he challenged me. He said, well, why do you need to leave to do it? Like, why can't you stay here and help your community? And why can't you use essentially the power of the firm and the brand to help you serve your people? And, you know, I'm really grateful for him putting that challenge to me because it did make me stop and almost we don't have to do things the way that we've always done them. We can do something different and something new. And I'm really excited about where this might take us. And, you know, for us, the fact that we can be working corporate or a big four a professional services firm can be helping Pacific businesses, you know, mum, dad businesses directly and community group. It's exciting. Like, I just think what a great, you know, if we can provide resource to people that want to do things, then it's awesome. And we get a lot of, you know, fulfillment and joy at our working with our people. So I love my forensic stuff, but um, yeah, the Pacifica services is, yeah, it's exciting for me. Yeah, and how lucky are those people coming through that they're going to have an automatic network when they join Deloitte, certainly, um, that they'll have that network there that you've created. And I'm so glad it's um, branded with the Rotuman language. <laughs> I got that one. <laughs> yeah. it was, it, I, I, Andrew, I did ask for feedback from the team. It was a, are you sure you don't want to use it? <laughs> I can get feedback, but you have to give me the feedback in five minutes. And so no, it's, um, it's, you know, and yeah, the return name means a lot for us because when we talked about, well, what do we want behind the name? You know, it wasn't just a name that didn't have any meaning. We were really deliberate about trying to convey the type of work that we want to do and and we worked with the Retirement Language Advisors to come up with something that would work for us and pass our breaking through ways, which is essentially what we're trying to do is trying to do something different um, and trying to do something different for our community. So, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm super happy about the name and I'll have to show you, show you the logo or the new branding that we have because it's, it's a turtle and it's awesome. Yeah, I'm really, really, really super happy with it. All right. Well, thanks, Lisa. Man, um, what a cool chat, you know. I thought accountants were boring. Thank <laughs> you. I'm not an accountant. <laughs> I know, I know. But, you know, come from a traditional accounting firm, I thought, you know, we're going to talk numbers and risk. Oh, no. That's not me. <laughs> but, you know, I've really enjoyed, like, even the business insights to the cultural insights to the values and organisational insights. I'm kind of envious of your team too. I'd, I'd, I reckon I'd thrive under your leadership because I like the fact that you're authentic, you got a sense of humour, you take yourself to work and you encourage other people to do that. You understand values and you understand diversity and the importance of it. And I just reckon that um, I want to come and work for you guys, <laughs> but cool. I don't want to relocate to Auckland. <laughs> oh, that's the, that's the only yeah. – it's not that bad, Andrew. <laughs> Hey, I came from there. No, thank you. Oh, thank <laughs> any, any time. But, you know, it's, a, it's my privilege to be on here. So thank you for inviting me. There we have it. Lisa Tsai, Associate Director, wife, mum, and our first guest from Rotuma. I really find it refreshing how Lisa was bluntly honest with the imposter syndrome thing. And especially imposter syndrome as a mother who was juggling her professional career as well as her motherly duties at home. Um, obviously it's outside of my area of expertise but I do know when observing my own wife who juggles our three kids as well as leading our business pursuits that this is a burden that is really difficult to navigate 
So props to Lisa, credit to my wife, and kudos to all the other working mums out there. You are not an imposter, you are the real deal. So thank you and we appreciate you. Next week, we have my good mate David Solomona, former NRL and UK Super League Grand Finalist and currently the man at the NRL's Wellbeing and Education Department. David is currently camping with the New Zealand Warriors in Tamworth in New South Wales, looking out for the team as they make a huge family sacrifice and go into camp here in Australia because the borders are locked down. Um, so they're sacrificing their families and time with their kids, etc., to ensure the NRL competition goes ahead. It must be really, really tough for them, and so uh, props to them as well, and David for making sure that their welfare and their well-being is also focused on. He's a top bloke. He's a great and skilled footballer, but an even better man. Uh, such a good dude, laid back and really funny, but also really, really faith-filled and focused on walking out God's calling over his life and encouraging others uh, to do the same. That's us. I'll leave it there for this week. Don't forget to follow us on Insta and Facebook under the Global Bus Success Podcast. And then have a great week. Take care and God bless.